Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
today, it goes without saying that the diversity has done wonders for the dining offering in Paris. It's almost agreed upon that things are far better now, and that can be attributed to the great diversity in the types of people that are cooking the food. Lindsay Tremuda is a food and travel journalist, also author of The New Paris, The People, Places, and Ideas Fueling a Movement. I'll be chatting with her later about the food, the bistros, and the new food movement in Paris. But before we get to Lindsay Tremuda, Leslie Parisot is here. She recently wrote a piece for Saver about a sacred pilgrimage in India where millions of women leave their homes to cook a rice porridge offering for their goddess. Leslie, how are you? I'm doing so well. How are you, Chris? Good. Uh, the Malabar Coast of India. There's an annual festival. Millions of women show up and they cook a specific dish. So just give us the the rundown on this festival, what it is, why they do it, and what it's about. So every single year, one to two million women, as it started to be recorded, were showing up to this festival called Achukal Pongala. And this festival is held in a city called Trivandrum. And a lot of these women are coming from Kerala, but they also come from other neighboring provinces, Tamil Nadu to the east, some of the bigger cities in the north. And everyone is coming by train, by car. They're traveling together. And so when you're at the train station waiting, you see dozens of women who, who've packed one bag with everything that they need to get to this festival. So people are making a pilgrimage. When they get to Trivandrum, they are greeted with these huge piles of red bricks, and they're all allowed to take a few bricks to set up a makeshift hearth. And they set up all over the streets. So when you show up, you see you know millions and millions of these tiny little hearths. And they're there to cook, um, which is part of a worship practice of, of making an offering to a god or a goddess. In this case, they're making an offering to a goddess that's generally known as Ama. And what happens is that at 10.30 or 10.45 on the day of the festival, there's a call in the temple, and there's a flame lit in the temple by a priest. And all at the same time, they light a fire underneath a pot that they've brought on the bricks, and they start to cook. First, they add water to a pot, and then they add three handfuls of rice. And part of the practice is to let the rice boil over, which means that the goddess has been satiated, that she recognizes the offering. And they let it boil, and it becomes part of a rice porridge. And then they add sort of, you know, anything that they want to. There's often coconut, there's ghee, there's palm sugar, which they call jaggery there. Um, Then you can add cinnamon, ginger, bananas. And then a priest comes by, and he blesses all of their pots. And then they pack it all away, and they take it home to feed their own families. Uh, and, and Pangala means to boil over, right? So the, the name of the festival is related to the cooking method? Exactly. Um, so I'm trying to understand. Four million people, mostly women, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, do, just, how do they manage that? It's a very difficult number to hold in your mind. And so for me, I sort of I, I looked up what cities have a population of 4 million? And um, L.A. has a population of 4 million. <laughs> so if you can imagine all of L.A., everybody who lives there, stuffed into one tiny place, and people who live there on the night before the festival, they set up tables outside of their homes, and they just cook. They cook for anybody who's there, anybody who's traveled. So it's really it's incredible. And for as many people as there are, 
I I never saw one person in a state of anxiety, at least on on the surface. There was there was no yelling. Everybody was smiling and cheerful. It seemed as if four million people were getting along quite well in ninety seven degree heat in India. <laughs> so this festival celebrates the goddess Amma, and it, it's a festival, obviously, for women. The rest of the year on the Malabar Coast, are the women's role then more traditional after the festival, or is this last, the other 364 days out of the year, that they have a slightly different stature in this part of India than maybe in the rest of India? It's complex. So so Kerala also has a different governing system. It's communist. It was one of the first places to freely elect communism. And that's had a lasting effect. You know, the, the education system is very good. Women can have very public jobs like teaching. They do still hold a, you know, a very domestic role in some cases. They are the caretakers for the family. But I think that there is this larger from what I understood an, an overarching feel that uh, this day in particular is the one where women can shed their daily duties and really come to the forefront of society and have a very physical space to demonstrate their power and their agency in Carolyn society. And so what did you eat when you were there? We ate a lot of, you know, spicy coconut-infused rice dishes. Um, in the morning, there are these these beautiful uh, light pancakes made out of rice flour and stuffed with super fresh coconut. And because it is such a, a rich region for spices, everything has either cardamom or ginger or some very spicy chili. But it's left me with a craving to go back and more deeply explore the food culture outside of Pongala. Leslie, thank you so much. I Now I want to go. Just sounded like a wonderful experience. You should. India is my next destination. Leslie, thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. That was Leslie Parasso, reporter and former writer for Sever. Milstreet Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time to open up the phone lines, take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to be brilliant? Chris, I am so ready to always be brilliant, yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sarah from Westboro, Massachusetts. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. How can I help you? Well, I have a question about Chinese cleavers. So I saw on one of your early episodes of the new TV program, uh, Fuchsia Dunlop and her Chinese cleaver, and I thought, I have to have one of these. And so my husband ordered me one, and I have it, and I'm using it for pretty much everything. That's what happens. Nobody will mess with me because the knife is so big. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with a big knife. No, absolutely not. One of the things that occurred to me, though, is I had always heard that with an Asian knife, the angle of the blade is different than yes. like my, you know, typical European style blade. So before I sharpen it with my old electric sharpener, I want to make sure I'm not going to ruin it. So I wanted to ask you guys, how am I supposed to maintain this knife now that I have it? You can buy almost any sharpener, electric or manual. The Western chef's knife should be sharpened at 20 degrees. And Asian-style knives are 15 to 17 degrees. Okay. Many, many 
knife sharpeners. Actually, we tested Je- a few choice. in Milk Street uh, a couple issues ago, I think, in May, June. You can either adjust. They have an adjustment to go from one to the other, or they have specific slots for 15 degrees and for 20 degrees. And the new Chef's Choice, or the newer electric models, as Sarah just said, also you can get them with a 15 degree. And for 30 or 40, 50 bucks, you can get the more manual ones, which also work pretty well. So that's what I would do in a pinch. However, and I've done this myself because I use those knives. I have sharpened them with a 20 degree. (laughs) And I just keep sharpening with them that, and you know, it works well enough. It works well enough. It's not the end of the world. I'm not going to ruin my week because I took a Chinese, you know, a $30 vegetable cleaver and used it on the 20-degree sharpener. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> do, do you know so, what's interesting? I mean, if it was a $500 knife, that would be different. Yeah. You know what's interesting, though, and this is why I think it might be worth buying a new electric knife sharpener, a good quality one like Chef's Choice, is apparently the European knife folks are now making the European knives with more of a 15 to 17-degree edge. Oh, so okay. pretty soon they're all going to be in that sweet spot. But in the meantime, I didn't. Well, may I add a statistic? We just did a survey at Milk Street a few months ago. 70% of the people we surveyed have never sharpened any of their kitchen knives. Oh, my God. So I'm always struck oh, by, no. and I've made a career out of, actually, trying to understand the difference between how people think people cook at home and how they actually cook at home. Wow. And well, so we sharpen ours well, every the, six weeks. You're already among the exalted <laughs> because you actually do sharpen your knives. So. Well, my husband does. And again, some of the manual sharpeners also work pretty well. They're U-shaped, and you put them down on the counter, and they look just like a chef's choice, except it's not electric. Oh, uh, And they okay. actually do grind. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, the honing steels don't really regrind the knife blade. They tune it up, and once the blade turns over, uh, it becomes dull. But if you use a steel or use a double steel every time you use your knife, it will stay sharp a lot longer. Yes. And if I did everything I was supposed to do every day, my life would be easier <laughs> too. But I'm sorry, Sarah. I don't. Anyway, uh, there you go. All right, perfect. Thanks so much. I yeah, appreciate your pleasure. help. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Beatrice Daspit. How are you? And where are you calling from? In Slidell, Louisiana. It's kind of across the lake from New Orleans. Oh, Oh, nice. I'm jealous. Yeah, me too. Yeah. um, My question today is about olive oil. Okay. I grew up with a mother who was half Sicilian, and she used olive oil a lot in her cooking. But back then, we only had just plain olive oil, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. But lately, with the advent of all the new olive oils, I had some questions about the extra virgin olive oils. A lot of the recipes that I read or I see on the cooking shows, they cook with the extra virgin olive oil. And I always thought that that was mainly to be eaten raw, you know, like either in a salad or drizzled on beans or your lentils or whatever. Is that accurate? Or Yes, uh, you're, you're right. A very high quality extra virgin olive oil will smoke at a lower point, about 380 degrees or so. Pure olive oil or light olive oil might go up another 30, 40, 50 degrees before it smokes. So if oh, you're going to okay. use high heat, you really want to get that skillet cranking. You probably are better off. And I use grapeseed oil, sunflower, safflower oil. Grapeseed's my yeah, favorite. Yeah, grapeseed's my favorite. And you're right. A good extra virgin oil is good for drizzling. The problem is in the supermarket, you can get oil that says extra virgin, but it's fairly inexpensive. 
And, and mm-hmm. a lot of people just use that for everything. I would keep a more expensive, higher quality extra virgin. I use a California Olive Ranch. I buy from them because I know it's relatively fresh. And just use that for drizzling. And then I would buy okay. buy grapeseed oil or a sunflower oil, whatever. There was a brand I was buying that's made in Sicily. And it's in a square tin that looks like artwork on the front of the tin. It's from a company that's been in business since 1916, it says on the tin. And it's first cold pressed. Yeah, how does it taste? It's excellent. Now you're making me jealous. So uh, <laughs> where did you get this tin of olive oil? Is this from a friend or did you actually buy no, it in no. a store? It's from a grocery store that's in the New Orleans area. And it's distributed by an Italian family who distributes other Italian-made products. And what's the name of the brand of the olive oil? It's Partana. P-A-R-T-A-N-N-A. A-N-N-A. We just wrote that down. The question is, will Sarah or I make the first call after this radio show to go find the stuff? <laughs> and it's in a beautiful tin. You know, I like it that. Has, uh, yeah. Like a lithograph of a little donkey in a cart, you know. Well, we'll try to run it down. We'll look for it. All right. Sarah and I have our work cut out. You've been very helpful, and I'm thrilled to talk to you because I watch your cooking shows. And Thank you. So it's a thrill to finally get to talk to you in person. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, I, we're, Beatrice. We're going to go check out your olive oil. Yes. Beatrice, okay. thank well, you. thank you very yeah, much. Best of luck. Bye-bye. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know the difference between hot and sweet paprika, or if you simply want the truth about nonstick cookware, please give us a ring anytime, 855-426-9843. That number is 855-426-9843. Or please email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Kelly from Madison, Wisconsin. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How can we help you? Well, I have a um, hashtag kitchen success and a hashtag kitchen fail. So it all boils down to, I guess, commercial leavening and a question on that. The uh, kitchen success was was that I had run out of baking powder one Saturday morning and I was making pancakes. And this was about a week before I heard the podcast where Mr. Kimball gave his uh, famous pancake recipe. And since I was out of baking powder and didn't want to go out, I decided to just whip up the egg whites and use that. And it turns out it was just about the same recipe that Chris sort of recited, and it was perfect. It's actually the one I use all the time now. Do you always leave out the leavener now? I always leave out the leavener now. I don't put baking powder in at all. But then the next week, it was zucchini season, and I got a clandestine baseball bat zucchini on my doorstep, and I was making zucchini bread, and the baking powder still hadn't made it on my shopping list, so I decided to try the same trick, and the zucchini bread wasn't right. You had a baseball so bat zucchini well, bread. <laughs> yeah, it's like in one hand, you're trying to lift a pillow, and another hand, you're trying to lift a car. I mean, zucchini uh, is full of liquid. It's very heavy, and so you need a lot of power, a lot of chemical leavener to lift it in a cake pan or loaf pan. Pancakes, just a little flour, buttermilk, egg, whatever, egg yolk, and so the job of lifting is very simple. And also, it's not a thick, you know, five-inch thick loaf. Uh, so right. it, it doesn't have to do much work. So whipped egg whites is great if you're lifting a, a simple batter, if you're doing angel food cake, essentially, which is mostly egg whites or a chiffon cake or whatever. But when you get into a heavy vegetable loaf, uh, like zucchini bread, boy, you need... Or banana bread. Yeah, you, you, you need some okay. serious lifting going Anything on. that dense, you need more than egg whites. Still, I applaud you for the pancakes. That was brilliant. 
The best pancakes are when you separate the eggs, beat the whites, oh, and fold them in. They're just incredibly thick and fluffy. Yeah, they're great. We had our in-laws in town, and it was in-law approved, so they Yay. loved it. Good for you. Yay. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, the clandestine baseball bat zucchini. I want to know who the culprit was. Was this someone who uh, you know who has all these big zucchinis in their garden? I have a neighbor who uh, has a bit of a green thumb, so I would imagine that uh, if I went over and really interrogated her, she probably would fess up. Here's what I want to know. I want to know what percentage of all the zucchini grown in American gardens never ends up being eaten. 90%? Because it goes from a sweet little zucchini it's to, charming, a, to yeah. a zeppelin in, you know, overnight. It's sort yeah. of like kids. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> they're charming when they're yeah. really young. Yeah. Those big ones, I mean, those are tough. I mean, they, they don't have a lot of flavor. Pretty much only good for bread. Yeah. About only use I found for them. I wonder if zucchini bread would be better without the zucchini. I mean, that, now that's a question. <laughs> yeah, that is a question. Probably would be a lot better. Yes. Just the spices. <laughs> anyway, Kelly, All right, thank Kelly, you. thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye. Take Bye-bye. You're listening to Milstreet Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Lindsay Tremuda. She's a food and travel journalist and author of The New Paris, after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I'd never get tired of it you know I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like man this beer is good (laughs) there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just 
like you made it, like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagashoid. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Lindsay Tremuda is a food and travel journalist, also author of the book The New Paris, The People, Places, and Ideas Fueling a Movement. She's here at Mill Street today to give me her hot list of where to eat, what to eat, and how the restaurant scene in Paris has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Lindsay, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. It's a bit chilly in Paris, but all is good. Don't try to make me feel sorry for you because it's chilly in Paris. I, mean, <laughs> I once spent a week after Christmas in Paris, and I managed to survive in the 40 degrees. It was fine. Um you, you have a new book this year, The New Paris, The People, Places, and I Ideas do. Fueling a Movement. Let's start with this. Let's start with restaurants. Restaurateurs and chefs from London moved in uh, many years ago. Americans are there now. Japanese chefs are there. W- what is going on and what do Parisians think about this influx of foreign cooks? I mean, I think initially there was some reluctance to open their arms to all this foreign influence. Um, But the reality is these foreign chefs have been in Paris for far longer than this movement, um, than when it first developed. So I, I think ultimately what happened is there was a sort of critical turning point in uh, the French food scene where, and, and especially in Paris, where the quality was dwindling, accolades were being rediverted to other cities. And, you know, some of the leading Parisian chefs were wondering, okay, what is what is really happening here? And, you know, do we need to take a look at what we're doing? Have we missed the mark? And one way that they were able to shake things up and regain their place in the world's food scene is by incorporating other influences and and realizing that they can't just stick to the classics and the mother sauces, but they need to take it a step further. And of course, having a brigade in the kitchen that is composed of more than just French people, or at least French people who had uh, trained or worked abroad, was one way to diversify what was actually ending up on the plate. And so today, I mean, it's almost... 
it's, it's what goes without saying that the diversity has done wonders for the dining offering in Paris. And you don't hear any of that reluctance. At this point, it's almost agreed upon that things are far better now. And um, that can be attributed to the, the great diversity in the types of people that are cooking the food. I, I've spent some time in Paris in the last few years, and it seems like there are a lot of different things going on that are sort of mutually exclusive. I mean, there's some very new restaurants uh, like Verjou and Ellsworth, you know, an American chef. Mm-hmm. A Spring, another American chef. But there are also the classics like Chez Georges or Severo. These are like a steak-free place or a classic bistro. Mm-hmm. So are the classic bistros still there in their classic form, you know, duck breast and lentils, et cetera, or are all those classic bistros reinventing themselves? In other words, is there still tradition in Paris that is is honored and thriving at the same time a lot of new restaurants are coming in? Absolutely, and I think that's been the best part of the evolution of the food scene is how some restaurateurs have managed to honor the past and find a a longstanding place for the traditional food that you're talking about. So yes, the the Severo and many other restaurants like that still exist, but you also have, to use Daniel Rosen as as an example, since you mentioned spring, you have Chez La Vieille and La Bourse et la Vie, which are two of his restaurants in Paris that are very traditional in format. The, the, The recipes are the hearty stews and the steak frites and the riz de veau and all of these dishes that started to fall off the menus, but that was partially because they weren't done with any great care to begin with. And so, you know, you have this younger generation of chefs and restaurateurs who are trying to bring all of that back. And so now that's been sort of the, once we've, we established that bistronomy was going to have a permanent place in the food landscape, now we have the bistro and, and brasserie revival. And what about the cafe? This is the place where you can get a coffee, fresh squeezed orange juice in the morning, uh, a croissant, mm-hmm. you know, a simple lunch, uh, Bertillon ice cream, whatever. I, right. I assume those are thriving. Have they changed? I mean, the food in those places is usually okay. Has someone come in and really reinvented the cafe, or are they pretty much the same as they've always been? Well, I think you have now cafes that share space with more Anglo-Saxon style coffee shops. And so that has sort of forced traditional cafes to to maybe think about what they're offering. But for the most part, you don't have a full uh, rethinking of the cafe model. Um, it's They're still alive and well. They're still fine in terms of the quality of the food. You can get coffee uh, and, you know, an orange juice, like you're saying, it's good in the morning when you just want a, a quick breakfast that is very starch heavy. Um, but there is one place that has uh, reinvented what it, you know, what that neighborhood cafe looks like, and that's La Fontaine de Belleville. Uh, one of the city's leading coffee roasters, so specialty coffee, is called Belleville Brulot. And they took over an old uh, neighborhood cafe, sits on a corner in the 10th arrondissement, and kept most of the bones intact. You know, all of the the old school style, um, they didn't really touch that. What they did do, however, is try to offer those cafe classics like a croque monsieur and a, a jambon beurre on a, on a baguette with just better ingredients. So the bread is better, the, the meat is better, and they do cheese plates and aperitif. But for me, the biggest change and, and why I think this is such a good example and hopefully where things will go is that they offer their specialty coffee. So not only do you have this very classic 
cafe space, but you can get better quality coffee. You can get craft beer on tap. You have affordable, some of which are natural wines. And it's just a great place. They even do jazz on Saturday afternoons. So that is one of the only corner cafes that have really modernized all while retaining its sort of old world charm. Okay, so so let's assume you get off the plane. Just give us a few suggestions about how to enjoy Paris on a budget to really experience the food and, and the life of Paris. Well, the good thing is there are so many bakeries now that are already very affordable and that do a number of things that can hold you over quite a while. So, um, you know, I'd say one one stop on a weekday is definitely Dupin et des Idées. Uh, bread and ideas, basically, is what that translates to. Um, and there, I mean, they have lines around the corner and not just from foreigners who know to head here as soon as they arrive, but locals who go there for, as their, you know, ultimate bread supplier. So they, they do very good bread and wonderful pastries. My favorite is the escargot pastry, which is shaped like a snail and has pistachio and chocolate. But it it is so heartwarming. Then, of course, you have the Marais, which is the, traditionally the Jewish quarter where you have a lot going on, in addition to the falafel, which is a staple. You have on one of the um, side streets, a place called Miznan, and that is an Israeli import. You have wonderful pita sandwiches, hummus. But what's interesting about what they do is they take the Israeli pita sandwich and they sort of Frenchify it. So you can get the the beef bourguignon pita. Hmm. And then you have these coffee shop canteen hybrids where you can eat super well, like a place called Café Méricourt, and that's in the 11th arrondissement. So you can get excellent coffee, uh, great teas, but then you have dishes like shakshuka and hearty green bowls with a lot of nice grains and pickled onions and feta and halloumi. And so I think I would say to someone who's coming and is on a tight budget, go to some of these types of canteens and these casual eats where you're likely to get a really good sense of what the city is is doing well right now at a much more affordable price point. And other than central Paris, everyone goes. You mentioned the, the 11th arrondissement with the Café Mercure. Uh, are there other places in Paris people might walk, for example? It's a great walking city. Are there, are there two or three places you would suggest people go that are not the usual tourist places? Absolutely. So near the 11th arrondissement is the 10th, which most people will know because of the Canal Saint-Martin, uh, so the waterway uh, that connects to the Bassin de la Villette, and then eventually up toward Villette, which is where the big Philharmonic is. And that's a very, very fun neighborhood to walk through. The 9th arrondissement south of Montmartre, that's, I mean, that's hopping with things to do, whether it's independent boutiques, lots of great bars and, and coffee shops, a lot of boutique hotels have set up there too. And what's interesting about those types of properties is they've become hangouts for locals as well. So you can very easily go to the Grand Pigalle Hotel for a drink and then mosey on somewhere else for dinner. And then in the 17th arrondissement, a section of it is called Batignolles, and it is wonderful. I mean, it, it went from being very sleepy and residential to now being a mix of families and, and young people. And so you have some interesting restaurants. One of my favorite pastry chefs has a, a tea salon up there. It's called Acid. And the great thing about Paris is almost in every arrondissement, there is some sort of a cultural offering that merits discovery. Now I'm going to ask you a question no one's ever asked you, except a thousand times, <laughs> which is, what's the one thing someone should eat in Paris that really 
describes the new Paris to you? Oh man, that's I know. Okay, I know. so I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you one place, and it's because it simplifies things for people. It means you don't have to go all across town to experience this one thing. So it's a store called Fou de Pâtisserie, which means crazy for pastry. And it is a sort of pastry concept store in the second arrondissement. It was created by the editors of a magazine of the same name. So it's a French pastry magazine, sweets magazine. And because they had, the editors had this longstanding relationship with a lot of pastry chefs from Pierre Armé to Jacques Genin to Carl Marletti and Cyril Lignac, they were able to sort of convince them to let them manage their goods. So to, to have under one roof a selection of pastries from some of the leading names in pastry and it be their own teams that manage them, not the teams of the pastry chef, which is usually how that works. And the boutique is fantastic. So for people who don't have that much time to spend racing around town looking for the best pastries, you can find a lot of it in one place at this shop and find things you can take home. So it's sort of like the one thing I would tell people to do without fail. Lizzie, thank you so much. Uh, that's really fascinating. I mean, you know so much more about it than I do. And uh, I've written down all your suggestions, and I will try them next time I come. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Lindsay Tremuda, a food and travel journalist, also author of The New Paris, The People, Places, and Ideas Fueling a Movement. You know, my first trip to Paris was in 1967. I walked the city one morning, and I stopped for lunch at a small left-bank bistro. And I remember the meal. It was duck breast and lentils, of course, a simple salad, a glass of Cote de Rhone, and some fresh farmer's cheese with a sprinkle of sugar. It was, in fact, the perfect meal. On subsequent visits, much like Brigadoon, I never found that bistro again. And, of course, that's the joy of the past. The perfect moment is never repeated, but it grows in memory to become more than it once was. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. Uh, today, we're doing a marmalade bundt cake, which is based upon a classic English pudding, a Scottish pudding called a marmalade pudding, of course. And since it's the holidays, steamed pudding seems appropriate. Also, a little bit of food history seems appropriate, too. I love your history lessons. That's why I do them. So uh, back in the Middle Ages, people used to boil meat. In fact, I still boil meat. I like boiled meat. But they figured out at the same time they could also cook something else. So they took a stomach or intestines, filled it with a force meat, which is spicy, sometimes a little bit sweet. So they'd have essentially a stuffing to go with the meat. Well, over time, those puddings, which is what they became known as, became sweeter. They were cooked in pudding claws or they cooked in bowls. And then you have the classic English puddings, like dead man's arm, that kind of thing. Now, those puddings were not like puddings here. They're, they're sort of cake-like, except they're a little bit heavier and moister, and they're steamed. So this particular recipe is a marmalade pudding. comes from a place on the Isle of Skye off Scotland called the Three Chimneys Restaurant and Inn. And uh, it's, it's a favorite. And we thought we would actually find out how to turn it from a steam pudding to something made in a bundt cake pan, which might be a little bit easier for most of us here in America to do. So how did we get started? Well, let's talk a little bit about what's going to go into this cake, both from a texture and a flavor perspective. We're going to make breadcrumbs. Most of these steamed puddings have breadcrumbs in them. We're going to make our own using whole wheat bread. We like a 100% whole wheat bread, nothing with seeds or nuts in it. That's going to affect the texture and the flavor of the cake. And we're going to use some fresh nutmeg in here. Uh, you want to buy fresh and grind it yourself. 
rather than buying the ground stuff. The flavor is just a lot stronger and more powerful. We talked about marmalade. This is orange marmalade. It's not your typical orange marmalade, though. It's called Dundee orange marmalade. It comes from an area of Scotland called Dundee, where they use Seville oranges, which are a little more bitter than a typical sweet, eat-out-of-the-hand type of orange. This type of marmalade is very coarsely textured and kind of heavy, so it kept sinking to the bottom of the pan, so we ended up with a layer of marmalade at the bottom of the bunt pan. To avoid that, we actually put it in the food processor. We add some crystallized ginger for a different layer of flavor and grind it up almost until it's finely ground, and that allowed it to distribute a little more evenly throughout the cake. We mix that with dry ingredients and eggs and then pour it into a prepared bunt pan. You know, you and I have spent hundreds of hours over many years trying to figure out how to prevent things from sinking <laughs> to the bottom of a bun pan. So it's probably true. an entire year out of our lives. So uh, how do we take a steam pudding and do a steamed cake in a bun pan? Well, obviously, we can't just take our bun pan and put it in the oven because that's cake. So we need to find a way to create some steam. So what we did was cover the bun pan with heavy-duty aluminum foil. You want to make sure you have a really tight seal. The bunt pan goes into a roasting pan that you're going to fill with water up halfway to the bunt pan. And that's going to create steam that goes up into that center channel of the bunt pan, so you get that special texture that you would get from a steamed pudding. So uh, how long does it take to cook? Does it have to sit afterwards? It takes a couple of hours to cook. It's steaming, so you really want that to go kind of slowly. You finish it off with a, a great sauce. It's a creme anglaise. We add a little bit of scotch to this creme Oddly anglaise enough. for flavor. This should be served cold. You can make it up to three days in advance, so it doesn't have to be made right at that moment. If you decide against the sauce, anything cold and creamy is great with this. Whipped cream or ice cream can also go with it. If I made this three days in advance, by the time serving came around, there'd be none left. <laughs> I don't think delicious. that's going to work in my household. Yes. Lynn, thank you. You've turned a marmalade pudding from the Isle of Skye of Scotland into a marmalade bun cake. It's still steamed and still has that really rich, delicious texture. Thank you. You're welcome. You can find our recipe for marmalade bun cake and scotch custard sauce at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, right after this break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. 
Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to answer some questions from our listeners. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? Chris, I am ready to do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is Jenny from Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Jenny. How can we help you? Hi there. I am calling because I have a question about chocolate chip cookies and maybe more specifically chocolate chips. Okay. When I was young, I recall that the Nestle Toll House commercials, you would break the cookie in half and they would be ooey and gooey and the chocolate would be melty. And I seem to recall that when I made cookies, it was the same way. But now that doesn't seem to happen at all. The chocolate chips stay solid. They're not melty. They don't That's taste as good. Excellent question. And I was wondering if I'm crazy or if you no, you know that's why I, that was happening. It's amazing. We do this all day, and then someone asks a question, and the bell goes off. And you're right. <laughs> you're right because I, you know, I used to make them all the time. And they were melty and gooey. And you break them in half and the sort of drips and everything. Right. And, and I think you're right. I think the chips today probably have more stabilizers That's in them, exactly what it is. Uh, because they want to maintain their shape. And that's why you can't substitute chocolate chips for bar chocolate in a recipe because they have stabilizers. But I do think you can buy uh, – they're different shapes. There's those wafers, you know. They're flatter. They're bigger pieces. Yeah. Deli, I think, may sell some of them. I think those probably will melt. Calibo – 
they have these things called callets or Calais, I don't know, C-A-L-L-E-T-S, which are like large chocolate chips that have no additives and that do bon melt. Calais. Yes, yes. So if you can get Calibo, C-A-L-L-E-B-A-U-T, you know, they make also block chocolate, and it's a good company, Calais. Well, they're rounds. They're like big chocolate chips. It looks like a chocolate kiss that melted. Yes. Right. Another thing that I've done is just taken good quality dark chocolate, because I really like dark. Just chopped it up and put chunks into my cookies. I've done that a few times. The problem is getting even distribution. Yeah, no, chunks, this is true. Sometimes you get a cookie that's 80% chocolate, and the whole thing kind of falls apart and melts on the Well, what's wrong with sheet. that? Well, that, well, once you get it in your mouth, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just getting into your mouth. It's a transportation problem. Oh, I, I don't think it's a problem at all. <laughs> no, it melts all over the cookie sheet. So the, so you're absolutely right, and you are quite an observer of the culinary scene. You're correct. Yeah, this is a problem, but it can be corrected. Jenny, there you go. You were absolutely right. Yes. Good eye. Thank yes. you so yeah. much. Okay. okay. Take care. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Pam from Fort Myers, Florida. Thanks for taking my call. Our pleasure. I enjoy watching and listening to your shows, and I note that in almost all instances, the actual cooking is being done using a gas stove, not an electric stove. Right. Fort Myers Beach is an island, and the ability to use natural gas for cooking is a rarity. In a condominium where I live, gas cooking is just not an option, so I have an electric range and oven. Recently, I had a problem with the range, which was easily fixed. However, if it happens again, I may need to replace the range. I'm wondering if an induction range is something I should consider. No, don't consider it. Buy it. It's the number one stovetop in Europe and has been for years. It's been very slow to catch on here. It can adjust heat instantaneously. You'd want to look at them in terms of the controls, I find some, some of them have easy-to-use controls. Others are less clear. Some of them also, you can put the pot anywhere on the induction stovetop, and it'll work versus at a specific place, and that's something to look at. But I've timed uh, gas versus induction. I, th- I say the rate of boiling you know, a quart of water, for example, to be about the same. Oh, I think it's faster. The other thing about it is it's just much more energy efficient. There's no waste of energy because it all goes from the burner into the pan. As you know, it works by magnetism. So there's no open flame, which also... You can't burn yourself. There's just no danger. I love induction. The other thing you should check is the amperage, I mean, your electrical system, because it depends on the induction stovetop and just make sure that the electrical requirements are checked before you buy it, that's all. And one last thing, you know, you need pans that work on induction, um, right. which is so, you know, aluminum, copper, and glass basically don't work unless they're in combination with stainless steel, although a cast iron pan will work. But how you tell is just take a magnet, any old magnet, and if it sticks to the bottom of your pan nicely, then it will work on your stove. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Call us about the meaning of life or simply the meaning of the word saute. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Yes, this is Annie Adler. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, My pleasure. It's what we do. (laughs) How can we help you? I find 
then that after I saute some chicken in olive oil and a bit of butter, usually I like to deglaze the pan, of course, with white wine usually, and I'll throw in a little pat of butter too. Then if I want to enrich the sauce a little bit and make it a little bit creamy, I'll add a touch of, if I have half and half or a heavy cream. And that's when I, I seem to have a problem. The sauce at that point when I put in the cream seems to look curdled or broken, and I can't seem to whisk it back together again, and I'm not sure what's the problem. Is it the acidity? Is it the cold cream? Or what I could do to make the sauce look a little less curdled? Well, let's start with, is it cream or is it half and half? Well, I'll use either one, whatever I have in the refrigerator. Half and half you can't boil. It will absolutely curdle. Unless there's a starch in there. You know, like when Uh you make a roux and you add milk to the roux. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, half and half does not have a high enough butterfat content. Cream you should be able to boil, and it should reduce. My thought is maybe with the butter and the cream and the chicken fat left over in the pan, you've got so much fat in there, that's why it's separated out. Oh. Yeah, but if you have, do you have any acidity? Do you have wine or lemon juice or something? She started with the wine. Okay, well, that's probably the problem, too. If you simmered down the wine until it was reduced by uh, half or two-thirds, and I, I wouldn't put the butter in the creamer. You don't need both. You need either or, not okay. both and. Okay. I think you actually might have too much fat. It might have separated out. Did it separate yeah. out or did it look curdled? Uh, more curdled. Okay. Did you have lemon juice in there, too? No, usually if I'll add white wine, I won't do the lemon. I've found done lemon with fish. So basically what I should do is let the wine reduce right. or pour out some of the original fat possibly. Then get the phone up and uh, with white wine, let that reduce, and then just add a cream rather than a half and half. Yes, yes. that's exactly okay. what that's I would the do. formula. Great. Okay. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it because it's something that just seems so simple and yet... Obviously, and there's little glitches there. So thanks so much. I'll yeah, be happy to my pleasure. That. All right, Annie. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks again. Yeah. Bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is a sauce from Italy, and it's called Bagna Cotta. It's a very simple sauce. takes 20 minutes to make, and you can use it on almost anything, from roasted vegetables to pasta, even to scrambled eggs. It's based on anchovies, and here's the recipe. Take a dozen each of chopped garlic cloves and anchovy fillets. Put them in a small saucepan with six tablespoons of butter and six tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil. We'd like to add a couple sprigs of fresh rosemary and also a pinch of chili flakes. Simmer over low heat, stirring just occasionally until the flavors have blended And the solids are soft and nearly dissolved. The anchovies actually will turn into a liquid, about 20 minutes. Use this immediately, or you can star almost indefinitely in a mason jar in the refrigerator. Now, this is also a great last-minute sauce for cooked vegetables, meats, just about anything, beans. Keep it in the fridge, and at the last minute, you can add a lot of flavor without any work. New Year's Eve is approaching, and wine expert Stephen Muse has a few suggestions for how to drink champagne at least what to drink it in. We're headed to Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge to do a tasting. I'm here at Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge with our wine expert, Stephen Muse. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. Now, this is a topsy-turvy segment because I brought the champagne today and you brought the champagne glasses. That's right. Which is kind of cheap of you. (laughs) But I, I guess the point is now New Year's Eve is upon us. Yeah, uh, we have to decide what to pour the champagne into. Yeah, we probably don't have to decide that we're going to pour champagne because it's the traditional drink of New Year's. And in fact, it's the traditional drink of celebrating in general, right? 
while all wine is pretty richly endowed with human imagination, champagne is like off the charts. So it has a hard time being taken seriously as a wine in its own right, something we bring to the table. And the thing that tends to get in the way are, I have to say, the bubbles. The way champagne glasses have been designed has a lot to do with managing the bubbles that are going on in the glass. We've got four different shapes of champagne glasses, and I'm going to pour us into the first one here. This is an old-fashioned shape of champagne glass. You've seen it in old movies. It has a fairly long, narrow stem, but the bowl of the wine is more like a cup shape. It's about four inches across. It's quite shallow. It doesn't really have sides. It just comes up a little bit. You're almost sipping out of a, a saucer. So I'm going to give that to you, Chris, and have a look at what's going on in that glass. The fizz is um, all going to the top yeah, in great volume right. and quickly. So what's happening is that the bubbles have a lot of surface area with which to make their escape. How's it taste? I'm not sure I like it in a coupe. Why not? I kind of like the concentration of a small surface area yeah. in the flute. Yeah. It's kind of more dramatic yeah. in your nose. Uh-huh. This seems a little flatter experience. Okay. The coupe is not designed to maximize your experience right. with a bubble. And the knock on the shape of glass is that it dissipates right. the bubble sooner than it might otherwise do. So let's go on to the second glass. And this, this is, is more of a traditional flute. This is a flute, and what we mean by a flute, it's tall and narrow, and where our first glass was shallow with a large surface area, the flute, which is also on a stem, there's a bowl that extends about five inches above the stem. It's only about an inch and a half across at the opening. It's very slender. Okay, so let's have a look and see what's going on there. There's more constant activity. Our bubbles continue to float up. I personally prefer this. Yeah. I want an intense, short taste of the champagne. Yeah. The other one, you get a full gulp of it. Uh -huh. And I find this is more sipping. You've got the taste and the aromatics, of course. But then you've also got the visuals, right? So you get the tall column of wine. And because bubbles tend to form out of imperfections in the glass. A really well-made flute will have a nick or two in the very bottom of the glass for bubbles to form. Ideally, you get this nice, tall, persistent, upward column of bubbles. This gives you a partnership between the liquid and the bubbles and uh -huh. the fizz. Yeah. It's a very different experience. Yeah. Okay. So this glass is an absinthe glass, Chris. It's a traditional style of glass. It's a little bit like a flute, but it's definitely wider. It has no stem to speak of. It's sort of stubby. I like this a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a little wider, so it's easier to sip, and you get a, a better flow. Now, the fourth glass is just a good old-fashioned Bordeaux glass, right? It's big. It's bulbous. It's sort of tulip-shaped. A lot of bowl there. It's tapered a little bit, but still a big, wide opening at the top, about a four-inch stem. And I'm going to pour you a glass of champs here. Let's have a look at it, first of all, to see what those bubbles are doing. Well, there's a very active bubble They're active, going yeah. on. Yeah. When you put two inches of wine in a glass like that, it doesn't come anywhere near filling it. So you don't get the spectacle of the long column of 
bubbles there. But you do get something else, I think you'll notice. You get the aroma. You get great aroma, yeah. not as strong on the appearance or the drama or the theater of champagne. But if you're bringing champagne to the table to enjoy with a meal and you really want to be able to taste it, a standard white wine glass or red wine glass with a big roomy bowl is really the best option. So at the end of the day, the coupe I don't like, the champagne flute was good. I think the whiter absinthe stock glass yeah. actually was my favorite. Uh -huh. It was a good compromise between everything. Yeah. This isn't so much about which glass is the most perfect. It's more to say that champagne behaves differently in different glasses. But I would say, don't be afraid to experiment. If you've got some pretty glasses, some fancy glasses, don't be afraid to bring them out and use them. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen, Mr. All champagne. Right. All right. I recently visited Chef Abraham Garcia in Madrid and discovered that he had a way with words. He opined that the problem with horses is that they prefer to eat barley than drink whiskey. He pointed out that butter is like the moon and oil like the sun, and hey, who doesn't love the sun? But my favorite Garcia quote was about his last meal. He responded, one should venture into the unknown on an empty stomach. That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, fear not, you can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to please subscribe to the show. You automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street television, or order the Milk Street cookbook. We'll be back next week. Happy New Year's, and thanks for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Associate producer Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRS. Okay.